Hello everybody and welcome to the latest in my series of ranking videos and we have a task that was well not the easiest task for me to do for the last 10 years or so Disney's been pumping out live action remakes of their animated classics the latest of course was The Little Mermaid which hit theaters just this past Friday so I decided to watch them all that's right even the ones I'd seen in order to generate a ranked list of my favorites and least favorites and before we start I think it's important to qualify what counted for this list and what did not count for this list. So some movies that were not considered for this ranking include 1994's Jungle Book, which was an adaptation of the book, not the Disney movie. Also Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland from 2010, which was a sequel to slash adaptation of the Alice in Wonderland source material and not the Disney movie itself. Christopher Robin was a sequel to the Winnie the Pooh movies, not a remake. Cruella was a prequel to 101 Dalmatians, not a remake. I also didn't do the remakes of Disney live action movies like Freaky Friday and Flubber because, you know, I only have so much time. And also I didn't include the sequels to any live action remakes such as 102 Dalmatians or Maleficent Mistress of Evil because those movies were kind of their own thing. So let's look now at the movies that I did put into consideration for this list, starting with 1996's 101 Dalmatians, then 2014's Maleficent, which was borderline, but it was in part a direct adaptation of the events from Sleeping Beauty, so it stays in. 2015's Cinderella, 2016's The Jungle Book, another borderline film was 2016's Peach Dragon, but it was a hybrid live-action animation film, so I decided to include it just to spice things up a little bit. We also have 2017's Beauty and the Beast, 2019's Dumbo, 2019's Aladdin, 2019's The Lion King, 2019's Lady and the Tramp, 2020's Mulan, 2022's Pinocchio, and then this year's Peter Pan and Wendy, and of course, The Little Mermaid. So let's get into the actual ranking of the movies themselves. And I have to say that this tier, these next few movies, are ones that I just really don't care for at all. They're not completely worthless, but they are ones that I don't really like as remakes of the Disney animated films. And also, I just don't really care for them as standalone films in any way, shape, or form. And the bottom film on my list, number 14, is a film that came out just last year, which was the remake of Disney's Pinocchio, probably the biggest fall in my mind from the original film to the remake. It doesn't help that Pinocchio is my favorite Disney animated classic. To begin with, there's nothing that is shared in common between this remake and the original animated film that's better in this version. You have Cynthia Erivo as the Blue Fairy, but she's barely in the movie. The visual effects of the film look terrible especially in the daylight, and the voiceover doesn't even blend at all with the movie. It sounds ADR'd in. We will eat dinner precisely at the stroke of five. Got it, Father. The stroke of five. And then you have the modernized updates like kids drinking root beer and eating candy instead of drinking beer and smoking cigars. You know, I went to Disney World last year and I think it's pretty hypocritical for them to make a film saying that an excessive amount of sugar intake is what's going to make kids turn into donkeys because an excessive amount of sugar is on the menu at pretty much every kiosk in the entire Disney empire. So the things that were in common are pretty bad, but that pales in comparison to the things that were added, including a hefty dose of self-referential modernized humor. We need a simple, strong stage name. Slab Oakley. Chad Log? <gasps> I've got it. Chris Pine. When all of Geppetto's clocks turned out to be Disney films, I almost threw my television out the window. You also have songs that are there in place of original songs that are just truly awful. Pinocchio, Pinocchio, 
And there's the addition of new characters that serve absolutely no purpose, like Fabiana, an assistant for Stromboli, who has a puppet that Pinocchio likes, and Luke Evans as the coachman who gets his own song for some reason. And then to top it all off, you have the ending of the film change to make it ambiguous about whether or not Pinocchio turns into a real boy. People say he was transformed into an honest-to-goodness real boy. Did that actually happen? Who knows? I don't... I... Why? You will always be my real boy. Honestly, this movie can't really seem to decide if it's an adaptation or like some kind of a parody movie. And it has a career-worst performance from Tom Hanks, who I don't think was ever really told what movie exactly he's in. This is a serious crisis. A catastrophe! As far as upside, um... I mean, the inside of Monstro looks pretty cool for the couple minutes they're in there, so good job. But really, this was a dreadful film that I hated the first time I watched it, and I hated just as much the second time I watched it, and that's why it's at the bottom of the list. And the question of what's better, the original or the remake, the original's first five minutes are better than watching this one five times in a row. Also, something I want to track across these movies is that Disney often has some fun with their logos when they do these films. And there is an alteration in the Disney logo here as Jiminy floats down and sings When You Wish Upon a Star as it integrates into the beginning of the film. It is the best part of the movie in that it's the first 15 seconds of the movie, and then everything is pretty much downhill from there. But uh, yeah, good job on the logo thing. Landing just outside the bottom spot is 1996's 101 Dalmatians, which was written by John Hughes, and I actually remember this movie being a lot better. It turns out I just remember that Glenn Close is great in the movie, and that's about it. It would be as if I were wearing your dog. <laughs> <laughs> the first half of the movie is fine. You've got a slapstick sequence with Jeff Daniels doing the meat cute, and you have House and Mr. Weasley as the two bumbling henchmen for Cruella, and it's pretty faithful to the original animated classic. But the movie really slows down once the puppies are kidnapped, and you can almost draw a line at the dividing point with this extended sequence where the animals are all talking to each other, but as animals, so there's no like subtitle or anything. It just kind of goes on for a very long time. John Hughes must have wanted to go on vacation because the second half of the movie is basically just home alone, but with dogs and the henchmen trying to get the dogs. There's a criminally small amount of Glenn Close as the movie goes on. And then when she comes back, it's just an escalating series of humiliations. I remember this movie being a lot better, but that's probably because I was 13 years old when I saw it the last time when it was out in theaters. And even then, I didn't remember loving it. The main thing this movie has going for it, the upside, is Glenn Close, who is great. And I haven't seen 102 Dalmatians, but I loved her Cruella DeVille, so maybe I'll check that one out. But as far as what's better, the remake or the original, it is absolutely the original because this is a serviceable redo for the first half and then just evolves into meaningless hijinks in the second half. Looking at the Disney logo, there's really nothing special for the era, but it is that 1990s Walt Disney Pictures logo that really gives me the throwback feels to when I was in elementary school and it was raining outside and this would come up on the television screen and then you had to guess what Disney movie you were about to watch. It was almost always Aladdin.
Coming into the number 12 spot is a movie that was a day one attraction on Disney Plus, and I think it actually may have been the first original Disney programming on Disney Plus that I ever watched, and that is 2019's remake of Lady and the Tramp. This is, of course, a live-action remake of the 50s classic, and you have real dogs, some CGI dogs, but even with the real dogs, they do the CGI talking mouth thing, which, even though this movie came out in 2019, still reminds me of ads from, like, the early 2000s. That is incredibly depressing and also not true, so thanks for nothing. Bye. I wish you didn't smoke weed. You're not the same when you smoke. More than anything, I think this version of Lady and the Tramp is the Disney remake that really doesn't have much to say about the original. It's just kind of the same movie again. I honestly think it only exists to rectify the We Are Siamese segment from the original animated classic, which, listen, I get. We are Siamese, if you please. Of course, when you put this movie in live action, it really does amp up the whole dog in peril factor, especially with the more grounded approach. For example, the scene where Lady goes to have the beaver chew the muzzle off of her. Instead, it's a beaver statue in a park because why have the animals in danger if you're not going to have the, you know, fun that goes along with it? Also, being in live action really does kind of underscore the craziness of the whole Italian restaurant scene. When you really break that scene down, they show up at the restaurant and the Italian restaurant guys are like, oh, we don't have time. I'm sorry, my friend, but I mean, it's a pool house in there, you yeah? know? Every table is full. And then they see that Tramp has brought Lady and they're like, oh, never mind. We're giving you the A-list of treatment. And so they like bring out a little table for them and they serve him a plate of spaghetti and they like serenade him under the moonlight. It's like a cute romantic moment. But again, seeing it with real people, I just imagine myself sitting in that restaurant waiting for my food and I'm like, where the hell is the waiter? And I I go outside to look and I come back inside and I sit at the table and I'm like, do you know where the waiter and the cook are? They're outside singing to a couple of freaking dogs. Like that's the danger of putting these movies in live action. You actually start to think about the real world implications of what happens in the movies. Oh, this is the night. It's a beautiful night. There's not really a whole lot to say about this movie. The additions to the film aren't really that significant. The effects work isn't really that impressive either. It just kind of is there. If I'm looking for some upside, I mean, there are a couple of funny new jokes, I guess. Hi, are you two uh, twins? I'm our husband, pal. Aha. In trying to determine what's better, the original or the remake, yes, the original does have some issues, but I still think that it is better than the remake version of this film. And looking at the Disney logo, there is a slight bit of a tweak. The graphics are the same, but you have a little bit of a sepia tone at the end, and then a jazzy take on the Disney theme to set the tone for the early 20th century Savannah-type setting of the film. Coming in at number 11 on the list is the Disney live-action remake that I actually thought going in might have the most potential and so was a big letdown for me, and that is 2020's Mulan, which in an alternate universe would have been the last movie that I saw in theaters before everything closed down for the pandemic. There was a critic screening the weekend before everything really went crazy, and we actually skipped it because we were already kind of starting to worry about whether COVID was spreading around, so I didn't see it, and it really wasn't until almost six months later that I finally saw saw the movie, although not in theaters, I was watching it from home, as everybody else did. 
Mulan is intentionally not a complete retread of the animated film. They decided not to do it as a musical. It's more based on the original stories, the folklore from which the tale derives. But at the same time, it has a lot of the trademark things and callbacks to the score and characters. We're going to make men out of every single one of you. And the critical error for this film wasn't that it didn't do what the original animated film does. That was the, actually the critical error for some of the other films that we're talking about. It's that they made a bad character choice when it comes to Mulan, because from the first frame of the film, she's basically a superhero. From the time that she's a child, there's no journey to take or any adversity to overcome when it comes to fighting ability. The conflict in the film is pretty much solely about Mulan trying to hide the fact that she is not a man, and that's kind of a one-dimensional conflict that can't carry the entire film. What I loved about Mulan in the animated film was not just the fact that she kind of goes undercover, but the fact that she had to use her wits and her intellect and her skills to kind of figure out how to overcome having to hide what she is and the fact that a lot of the people around her were stronger, but she was smarter. And I think that that was a great journey to take along with that character. And you don't get that in this film. You instead have basically a Marvel Comics character, but I just think that it's a far less interesting journey and one that really kind of bores me as we go along. She's braver than any man here. She's the best warrior amongst us. Also, I can't figure out why you have these beautiful surroundings and this obscenely high Disney budget, and yet they choose to have the action climax of the film at a construction site, like some mid-90s Jean-Claude Van Damme film, complete with a finishing move that requires an unholy amount of leg strength. So looking at these two versions of Mulan, what's better, the original or the remake? Well, I think that the original for me is easily the better of the two films. I just don't find this film very interesting at all. And looking at the Disney logo, there are some changes here. It is stylized in the ancient Chinese design of the rest of the film, and it uses the film score instead of the Disney theme. So much like the rest of the movie, very beautiful to look at, but also kind of empty. So from here, we move on to a bit of a different tier on these Disney films, from the ones that I would say that I really did not enjoy to a very meh kind of tier. These are movies that I found aggressively unremarkable or without a whole lot of notable characteristics and they almost you know didn't really achieve enough for me to like or dislike them and we'll start with the number 10 film on the list. It's a movie that came out just earlier this year and that is Peter Pan and Wendy the remake of the Disney classic Peter Pan from the 1950s. David Lowry is a director with an incredibly versatile filmography and I found that the two films of his that I'm least interested in are his two Disney remakes. This is the first of his remakes to be on this list. Disney's had a problem in recent years, the last 10 years or so, about making subtext text in a film and making text bold text in a movie. And so I can get behind the thesis statement of the film, which is to kind of promote Wendy to be a main character alongside Peter Pan, because there are many improvements that can be made to the original story and the 1950s Disney film. I don't have a problem with the approach. I have a problem with how they do it, which is that Disney just can't help but make sure the audience notices the great progressive things that they're doing instead of letting the great progressive things that they're doing just speak for themselves. Which means you must all be lost boys. Every last one of us. But you're not all boys. So? But I guess it doesn't really matter. You have a boy's magic. No, this magic belongs to no boy. Ever Anderson actually makes a really good Wendy. I liked her in this role and bonus points for giving her the same motivation in this film as James Vanderbeek had in the classic teen film Varsity Blues. 
It's what I did when I was your age. What if I don't want your life? Playing football at West Canaan may have been the opportunity of your lifetime, but I don't want your life. But I do think this movie is held back by Alexander Maloney's Peter Pan. I just don't think he's that great in the role. And I never really feel the joy that you should have with the character of Peter Pan. Now, that's, a lot of that's not his fault. It has to do with the screenplay. I'm sorry I did what I did, Captain Huck. I'm sorry I hurt you, James. Jude Law's Captain Hook and Jim Gaffigan as Smee are fine. They don't really add a whole lot to those roles. And this movie has a very bad case of backstoryitis because not only is Captain Hook Peter's mortal enemy, but we learn that it's because they used to be friends, of course, because that's how things always work, isn't it? Hook was a friend of yours, wasn't he? He was my best friend. There's some admirable things in the movie. I mean, you have a more active role for Tiger Lily, but also really the only two things that the movie gives Tiger Lily to do are to fight and to heal Peter, which if you're trying to kind of break the stereotypes of indigenous portrayals in film, that's not exactly the two things that are outside of the box when it comes to Hollywood's past. The movie can't totally blunt David Lowry's talents, though. I love the metaphysical approach to traveling to Neverland. The beautiful cinematography gives Neverland a very magical feel. And there is a really cool gravity-bending Inception-type fight on a boat near the end of the film. But as well-intentioned as Peter Pan and Wendy is, I think it just pushes this story into a far too serious territory for where it actually operates best. I've killed Peter Pan. Looking at what's better, the original or the remake, as I mentioned, the original Peter Pan animated film has some deep flaws, and it actually wouldn't have been that hard for Peter Pan and Wendy to match or surpass it. It really just had to kind of replicate that same joy, but I didn't really get that from this film, so I have to say, regrettably, I still think that the original animated version is the superior version, and I wish that this one had lived up to the mark better. The logo is not custom to this film. It is the Disney 100th Anniversary logo, which I actually think is pretty cool. I like the integration of Disney landmarks like Pride Rock in the background, and I would be okay if they stuck with this after the 100th anniversary celebration is over. Speaking of Pride Rock, let's get to the number nine film on my list, and I will openly acknowledge that I am way lower on this movie than a lot of people, but it is 2019's The Lion King. Now, there are some people that would say that this should not be on the Disney live-action remake list because it is entirely computer-animated, which I don't disagree with, but it has the look of live-action, and both Disney and Jon Favreau have explicitly said that they don't consider this film to be animated. They've also specifically said that they don't consider this film to be live-action, because it by textbook definition is not so this movie exists in like a cinematic purgatory where it is no medium it's a schrodinger's medium i put it on the live action adaptations list because why not it feels like even if it is animated it feels like it is definitely part of these films that we're talking about this movie just does absolutely nothing for me, it kind of reminds me when I was a kid, I used to listen to a lot of Weird Al and my mom didn't really listen to the radio at all. So she would only hear a lot of popular songs through the Weird Al version. And so she thought that that was like the version of the song and she thought it was really cool. 2019's The Lion King is kind of the Weird Al cover version of the original Lion King in that it's good if you've never seen the original film, but it's an obvious imitation if you have. Plus, I think that Weird Al did the cover version better 
than this movie does. One of the issues with this movie is that the entire original voice cast is pretty untoppable. I mean, they didn't even try to replace James Earl Jones for this version. They just used him again as Mufasa. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. And so you have great actors that are voicing roles that just can't be matched from the original film. For example, Chiwetel Ejiofor, great actor, but he is no Jeremy Irons as Scar. And it's not helped by the fact that Be Prepared has basically been turned into a spoken word poetry song that pales in comparison to what we saw in the original film. Yes, my teeth and ambitions are bad. Be prepared. I think the realism also hurts the movie here. You're not able to go as fantastical as the animated version did. So I Just Can't Wait to Be King, which was a big production number in the animated version, is really just the lions running around the savanna in this version, kind of underwhelming. Then you have just really baffling choices, like the fact that the song Can You Feel the Love Tonight takes place during the day. I mean, that's just an easy fix. Was the thought that, well, you couldn't see outside under the starlight? I don't really know what the decision-making was there, but it doesn't work. One thing I think this movie also really highlights is the difference between celebrities and voice actors, because Donald Glover and Beyonce, both incredibly talented people and good actors, but I don't think the best choice for the voice roles in this film, because I feel that their Simba and Nala are somewhat flat. There's nothing I can do. What about your mother? This is your responsibility. You need to challenge Scar. I can't go back, ever. And I think it's the case of Disney hiring two very talented and successful people and then just not really giving them the direction to make these characters interesting. It's not just enough to have famous people voicing these characters. They have to give them some dimension in order for them to feel fully fleshed out. And I don't really get that. We have a great new Beyonce song in the movie. Maybe that's why they hired her to do the character voice. But I still think it would have been better just to get a great Beyonce song and then hire another voice actor. This movie made a billion dollars, so it justifies the reason for why it was made, but I still have a tough time reconciling why it needs to exist when you have a great movie like the original. So talking about what's better, the original or the remake, for me, a thousand times the original, this is just a pale imitation of one of the best animated films of all time. Looking at the Disney logo, there's an old school animated version at the beginning of the film that's only been used on a couple of movies, including another John Favreau one that we're going to talk about later. I I love this version of the logo and I wish it was used more because it feels very classic Disney. Let's go to number eight on my list. And I think the fact that it is this high up is probably going to surprise a lot of people. It certainly surprised me when I was putting the list together. And that is 2019's Dumbo. Honestly, I feel pretty much the same when it comes to The Lion King and Dumbo, but I put it a little bit higher because this version of Dumbo, while I don't think it really works, at least tries something new. And so that was the tiebreaker here between these two films. This Dumbo starts off the same as the animated original, but becomes a huge departure, largely because huge swaths of the end of the Dumbo animated film, you um can't use. Well, I just can't believe my eyes. The movie really comes into its own when you introduce Michael Keaton as a guy who owns a very Disney-like theme park called Dreamland who wants to exploit Dumbo for profit. And given this film's themes of using talent to make the maximum amount of money and laying off a bunch of other staffers that you don't really want around, it's kind of shocking that Disney greenlit this approach. To be honest with you, they're really pale limitations from the acts we already have. So I was thinking, I don't know, Month severance seems fair. But they're my troop. 
They're counting on me. Also, I have to give Dumbo 2019 credit for having the guts to put in either the best or the absolute dumbest cameo in all of the Disney remakes. Let's get ready for Dumbo! This version of Dumbo does have its bright spots. There's a talented cast. Michael Keaton is there to have a good time and is obviously chewing the scenery. Hey, hey, break the arrest that man. He stole my elephant. Hey, we had a contract, Manatee. It is interesting, though, looking at my list, that this ended up paired so closely with The Lion King because on one hand, you have an unambitious, lifeless recreation of the animated film, and on the other hand, you have what I think is a failed reinvention of the animated film. And in the end, I think what it really does is just underscore how dicey it is to do these remakes. There's really not much of a margin for error here. When trying to figure out what's better between the original and the remake, this was tough because these are both two very flawed movies. But in the final estimation, I have to say that the original, warts and all, does just edge out this ambitious and yet largely unsuccessful remake. But you haven't seen anything until you see an elephant fly. We have a lot more Disney movies to rank, but before we do, I want to thank the sponsors for this episode. This episode is brought to you by Factor. We are turning the corner into the summer season, which means more activities, less time inside, but also more focus on eating the diet that's right for you. That's where Factor comes in. America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat and enjoy, then get back outside and soak up the warmer weather. With 34-plus prepared, dietitian-approved weekly options, there's always something new to try. Plus, you can round out your meal and replenish your snack supply with an assortment of 45-plus add-ons, including breakfast items and smoothies. This month, get Factor and enjoy clean eating without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered to your door ready in just two minutes no prep no mess head to factormeals.com slash merle 50 and use code merle 50 to get 50 percent off your first box that's code merle 50 at factormeals.com slash merle 50 to get 50 percent off your first box this episode is brought to you by StoryWorth. This year is going by incredibly fast, and Father's Day is already coming up soon, meaning it's the perfect time to find a gift that is truly unique and meaningful, and StoryWorth is the perfect gift. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth will email your loved one a question of your choice from their vast pool of options. These are questions you may have never had the chance to ask, like what's the bravest thing you've ever done? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? I gave my mom StoryWorth last year, and the incredible things that I've learned about my family, along with the photos that she's provided, are so rewarding. And after one year, StoryWorth will compile your loved one's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. This year, give all the dads in your life a unique, meaningful gift you'll all cherish for years with StoryWorth. And right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash Merle. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash Merle, M-U-R-R-E-L-L, to save $10 on your first purchase storyworth.com slash Merle. 
At number seven on my list is a movie that just barely qualifies, but because it does include some very faithful recreations of a Disney animated classic, it's on this list. And that is 2014's Maleficent. It is an adaptation of those events from Sleeping Beauty, so it does count. But it's also a movie that's very much of its time, featuring a catalog of what almost every big-budget blockbuster had to offer just a decade ago. First of all, you get an expository mythology dump at the beginning about the real story behind Maleficent, the villain-as-victim-slash-hero narrative. Let us tell an old story anew, and we will see how well you know it. You also have that paired with an eco-friendly mankind is the real enemy message, which was a common trope of movies in the mid to late 2010s. Throw into that batch a good old faceless superfluous CGI army and hell, even a sky beam and you have like the cave painting of a blockbuster in this era. Angelina Jolie is this movie's biggest asset, and she is at her best when she is allowed to play Maleficent as just deliciously evil, which she gets to do for about uh, 25 minutes of this movie. Really, the peak of it is that scene that they recreate from the animated film where she crashes Aurora's introduction to the kingdom. I must say, I really felt quite distressed at not receiving an invitation. Jolie was actually perfect casting for this part, and she's got the chops to pull off the acting beats required in this story, but so much of it is kind of given to Maleficent the sad, Maleficent the victim, and doesn't play into just how deliciously evil and biting and sarcastic Jolie can be in this part. It's so ugly, you could almost feel sorry for it. <sighs> Overall, I think Maleficent is a good core idea, the idea of Sleeping Beauty from the villain's point of view. I think it just got wrapped up in an era where villains weren't allowed to be villains in their own movies. So looking at what's better, the remake or the original, you know, I'm going to be a little generous here. I'm going to say it's a draw because the original Sleeping Beauty is a pretty spare story. Looking at the logo, the Disney castle has been restyled as the castle for the film, which seamlessly integrates into the beginning of the movie. So it's a pretty nifty way to start. And I like when these remakes do this because it does feel like you're integrated into this overall Disney Universe. At number six on the list is the second remake directed by David Lowry, the 2016 version of Peach Dragon, which shares almost nothing in common with the original movie, which means that this film gets rid of what I think is the scariest set of live-action Disney villains in the history of Disney films, the Shelley Winters-led hillbilly family, the murderous family from the original movie. This version of Peach Dragon is less Disney magic and more magical realism. Pete is a feral kid out in the forest who's found by Bryce Dallas Howard's park ranger. Robert Redford, much more of a whimsical figure than the comical drunk that Mickey Rooney played in the original Peach Dragon. A dragon! A dragon! I swear there was a dragon! You saw a dragon? I sure did. Oof. I sure did. And I can't find a lot of fault with the movie. There's not a lot that I love about it either. Although it is quite enjoyable to watch Carl Urban yell about dragons for an hour and a half. It was a dragon! Follow that dragon! That's my dragon! 
Once again, you can't argue with David Lowry's style or his ability to conjure up some beautiful shots, but this version of Peach Dragon just doesn't leave much of an impression on me at all. More than any of these other remakes, I feel like my opinion of it is almost completely set apart from the original because there's not that much of a common DNA thread between the two. It's just kind of an okay movie. This was really tough to make the decision on what's better, the original or the remake, because I enjoy parts of the first Peach Dragon movie, but it is really, really long. You could almost say overlong. On a different day, I might say that the original Peach Dragon just edges it out, but here, we're going to call it a draw, and there's really nothing special happening with the logo on this version. It's just the regular current CGI Disney logo with the Disney theme and no customizations. The final film in this tier on my ranking of the Disney films is actually higher than I anticipated it being, but it was really just kind of a war of attrition with movies that I felt almost nothing about, and that's 2017's Beauty and the Beast. Honestly, this movie was a dead heat with Peach Dragon quality-wise, but what I think puts it in the five spot for me were the overlapping things from the original film that I think were also good in this live-action version. Emma Watson is good as Belle when it comes to acting, but unfortunately one of the movie's biggest flaws is that her singing obviously needed some digital assistance, and it's pretty obvious. Little town full of little people. However, both Dan Stevens and Luke Evans have the vocal chops to perform their roles. Gaston in particular, who's played by Luke Evans, is pulled off really well. Luke Evans hits all the right notes, both musically and on the acting side, to make a version of Gaston that at least matches or is able to compete with that original animated film. As a specimen, yes, Dan Stevens has the great voice, but the CGI on the Beast is not great stylistically, and I think that they struggle sometimes with a lot of these shots. And actually, when it comes to the style of the film, that's another barrier for me, because Ian McKellen as Cogsworth and Ewan McGregor as Lumiere, they do fine voice work and some good singing. They can sing, they can dance, after all, miss, this is France. But the way that these household objects are designed, this like overly ornate Baroque style, it was kind of horrifying to me, and it, it, it took me out of the film instead of making me enchanted with their appearance. Josh Gad was also kind of horrifying to me. His LeFou is just creepy looking. He's off-putting. I, I really don't think that that's what you want from a LeFou. I don't really have a problem with Josh Gad in general, but there's like, he's got like a like a leering thing. I, just, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just, ugh. Of course, it also can't be overlooked that LeFou was the target of the much-hyped-by-Bill Condon exclusively gay moment at the end of this film, which if you looked down to eat a piece of popcorn, you would definitely miss from the final sequence when everybody's dancing. This was also the early days of Disney being very self-congratulatory in the media before a movie comes out about the forward-thinking things that they're doing in their movies instead of just doing forward-thinking things in their movies and letting them sit there and be, you know, forward-thinking. We also get that remake Darkness as we take a wonderful jaunt back to plague-riddled Paris to reveal how Belle's mom died. And then we get a healthy heaping of a beat where we watch all of our favorite household objects lose their sentience at the end of the film, along with that beat that's already there where you think the beast is dead. Lumiere, my friend, it was an honor to serve with you. 
the charm of the original Beauty and the Beast is still here, and it's felt in some places, which is why it's as high as it is, but this movie is still a hugely mixed bag, saved by some smart casting and that carryover goodwill. However, when we talk about what's better, the original or the remake, I think it, for me, easily is the original. One of the cool things with this movie, though, is that the Disney castle is once again restyled, this time as the Beast's castle, with full integration into the music and narration for the film's intro, and again, that kicks things off on the right foot. So with 10 movies behind us, we come to the final four films, and these are the only four out of the 14 remakes that I walked away from saying, you know what, I actually enjoyed those movies, I think that they can stand alongside the original films and in the case of a couple, perhaps surpass them. So in my estimation, if you are going to start watching these Disney remakes, these would be the four that I would start with and maybe also the four that I would stop with. At number four is a movie that I am much higher on than most people, and that is 2019's Aladdin. It's not as good as the original movie, but I think it's pretty good in its own right, actually bringing some cinematic flair to this rendition. The movie is helped in that it has two solid leads as Aladdin and Jasmine, Mina Masood and Naomi Scott. They're able to hit the parts vocally, and Masood in particular makes for a charming Aladdin, along with an ability to sing and a great ability to dance that makes this character even more dynamic. You know, it turns out that when you cast people who are talented in the areas of theater and dance, then your movie musicals turn out that much better. Who would have thought? Will Smith could never be as good as Robin Williams or replicate that performance. And smartly, Disney and Smith don't try to do that. Instead, we get a familiar take on the genie, but one that's more personalized to Will Smith's strengths and I think often very funny. I could just make you a prince. Oh, no. Right, you'll be snuggled up with that dude for the rest of your life. Y'all see my palace? My biggest note on Will Smith's genie is that his singing in the more traditional parts of the film, like the Prince Ali number, obviously needed a little bit of digital assistance, and that's pretty noticeable. When it comes to exotic type mammals. Everybody help me out! However, I do think that he and Mina Masood have a good chemistry, and the movie leans into that for more scenes with some extra laughs. We have jams. Jam? Jams! Delicious, ex exotic jams. Move away from the jams. What? The choice to go with a younger, more dangerously seductive Jafar is a choice, but I think it might hold the film back a little bit because I don't feel that maliciously delicious evil from this version of Jafar. I think it's time to say goodbye to Prince Abubu. Disney didn't cheap out on this production and set pieces like the Cave of Wonders really do deliver on the ambitions of the production and the self-referential Disney stuff I think works here because you have a genie character who can make those references and they make sense in the film and the movie actually feels fun. Sure, it gets dark at times, but so does the cartoon. It doesn't feel unnecessarily dark. And that's the difference. I mean, hell, the movie ends with a big dance party. Generally, I think it suffers most only when you compare it to a really good original film. On its own, I actually quite enjoy the movie. So yes, when you compare the remake to the original, the remake can't quite live up to the heights of the first Aladdin movie, but not many other movies can. One thing that is kind of a missed opportunity, though, is not integrating that Disney logo. There's some music that's added from the Aladdin score, but it really only has a flair transition to the opening of the film, and I think you miss an opportunity to have a little bit of fun right off the bat. 
At number three on this list is the movie that just opened this past weekend, which is The Little Mermaid, a movie that I enjoyed far more than I had anticipated. It is not the greatest, but it is the latest Disney remake, and it's really driven by Halle Bailey in the lead as a great Ariel. The supporting cast of the film really works. I think that Jonah Howard King is a good Prince Eric, and they also add a little bit more to his backstory to make his and Ariel's relationship work better. It's a true adaptation in that I don't think it loses a lot of the charm of the original and adds a couple of things that I liked, although it does add a few things that I don't like as well. I am being plagued by one of the songs that's been added to the film called The Scuttlebutt. You've probably heard it if you're plugged into social media at all. It's a new song that was given to Aquafina as Scuttle where she's delivering some gossip. And when I did my original review for the film, I said I wasn't sure whether I loved it or hated it. And I think I figured it out over the last couple of days that I hate how much I want to love it but actually hate it, and it has been in my head for the last four days straight. Lin-Manuel Miranda has done this to me in the past, but it's been with good songs. I don't like this song, but it plagues my every waking moment and my nightmares as well. Please somebody tell me how to get this song out of my head. Remember the swamp? Remember my song in the swamp? And I was like, wham, chick your wham, wham, chick your wham. The Scuttlebutt notwithstanding, I still enjoy this film on its own merits. When you look at what's better or what's the original, I'm going to say it's a draw between the original Little Mermaid and this version. I think you have two great versions of Ariel. And of course, if you want to hear more of what I think about the film, you can look at my review, which just came out a few days ago. One thing I didn't take note of when I watched it in theaters was any change that was made to the Disney logo, although I believe that it was the Disney 100 logo that we already saw in front of Peter Pan and Wendy, which is a logo, as I said already, that I enjoyed. And so now we come to the final two, and these are the two films that I think not only meet the standards set by the original animated films, but also surpass those standards. And the film that I picked in second place was 2015's Cinderella. The original Cinderella film, I think, is high on iconography, but low on substance. And I think what this film does so well is to keep what works and then make some meaningful additions. We get a much better setup of young Ella and her parents before her mother dies, and then Kate Blanchett entering the picture as the wicked stepmother. We also see Cinderella live the nightmare of becoming a servant in her own home, and Lily James makes you feel for her as a young woman who's truly selfless and yet cast aside by the selfish. The prince, who's played by Richard Madden, gets an expanded role, and we see why he likes Cinderella, apart from the fact that she was a hot girl who showed up at his party. And Madden and James have great chemistry. You actually want these two to get together. Helena Bonham Carter is maybe not the first name you think of as the fairy godmother, but she gives the godmother a fun sense of chaos that you don't get from the kindly grandmother of the original animated film, and I think the transformations are fun and magical. The movie even adds some good dramatic scenes. You have a great scene between the prince and the dying king where he's told to go out and find this girl that has so enchanted him, and then you have a wonderful showdown between Cinderella and her stepmother about just why she is so mean to her. Why? Why? Because you are young and innocent and good. Honestly, you know it's a good movie if even I, in full awareness of how the story is going to end, am driven to going, oh damn, in the last 15 minutes of the movie when the prince reveals himself to be in disguise at Cinderella's house. I trust the lady. 
We're leaving. Grand Duke. And then I did it again when Cinderella basically gives the kiss off to the wicked stepmother. I am her mother. You have never been. And you never will be my mother. There's actually not a whole lot that I can fault about this movie. It improves on the original. And it was actually one of the ones that I hadn't seen before I made this list. And I regret not seeing it earlier because it maybe would have built a little bit more goodwill for these Disney remakes. So talking about what's better as far as the original or the remake, I actually think the remake here is better. And also it's not surprising with the Disney logo, considering that the castle at Disney World is Cinderella's castle, that there's not much modification required. We get a night to day transition with the castle and then we go right into the beginning of the film. And so we come now to the number one film. If you've been crossing movies off your list, then there's not a lot of suspense here. And that is 2016's The Jungle Book, directed by Jon Favreau, which I believe builds on the original, like 2015's Cinderella, but is also more successful in fusing elements of the original Disney animated film. Jon Favreau's ambition as a director really pays off here, and I think it's because he wasn't given something to recreate. He was given something to revive, because I enjoy the original Jungle Book movie, but I think narratively it's pretty sparse, and there was a lot to go in there and beef up, and that's what Favreau did here. Not just the technological innovation, but also going deeper into these characters and into the story and making things that much more dramatic. Idris Elba is a great heavy as Shere Khan, terrifying to look at, sympathetic in his own way, and hateable in all the best ways. Then you have Bill Murray as Baloo, a great con artist, Ben Kingsley voicing a great mentor in Bagheera, Lupita Nyong'o as the loving wolf mother. We even get Christopher Walken singing King Louis' I Want to Be Like You as more of a threat than a celebration. Now give me the secret man cub. Come on! Tell me what to do. Give me the power of man's red flower so I can be like you. The joy of the Disney animated classic is here, but the danger is too, and both of those are important for this movie to work. The movie culminates in a genuinely exciting finale as Mowgli uses fire, man's red flower, to set the jungle on fire for one last showdown with Shere Khan. I don't want to slight the original Jungle Book film too much, but I think that this one is superior in every way from the opening credits to the inventive ending credits of the film. And if I were to choose between which version to watch, I would pick this version every time because I don't think you're missing out on that much by not watching the classic and watching this one instead. And that's why 2016's The Jungle Book is at the top of my list. When I look at what's better, the original or the remake, obviously I think the remake is better. And when you look at the Disney logo, it's also my favorite variant. It's the hand-drawn variant that I pointed out when we talked about The Lion King. And it also transitions as it goes down the river into the title of the film. So this is not only my favorite take on a Disney classic, but also my favorite take on the Disney logo and perhaps fitting that from the first frame, I really, really, really love this movie. So what do you think? Are there some of your favorites that were too low? Are there some of your least favorites that are too high? Let me know down in the comments below and thank you for watching this recap. If you like what you see, share this video, subscribe to the channel. If you're subscribed, hit that little bell so you know when I do another ranking video or things like Charts with Dan, which will be up later this week as we talk about the box office to The Little Mermaid, as well as movie reviews, box office breakdowns, news, and more. Thank you so much for watching this ranked video. Until next time, stay safe. And I'll see you then. Bye.